I think um, privilege has, gets a kind of a bad rap these days as it seems to be a topic that we quite talk about quite often in our world today. Um, however, I think that everyone is trying to give their families and their children advantages or privileges in this life so, uh, so that they can focus on things that matter to them. Maybe a couple of great examples of this is that if you think about when you were growing up, how often your parents would serve you while you were studying, while you were working, because they really wanted you to study really hard. I have very vivid memories of my own mother when I would be working. The only time my mom would actually do this is actually when I'm studying, funny enough, so I kind of told you where her heart was actually at with what mattered to her. But when I was studying and focused on my studies, my mom would bring plate after plate of like vegetables and of like fruit, and basically so that I could focus on studying and not have to worry about just taking care of my basic needs. Privilege is something I think that is wonderful, advantages giving to our family, something that is, I think, universal to all parents and families, because it, and it, and it kind of transcends beyond these kind of political bounds, right? Like, I, I still see, like, I think over a couple of weeks, I saw these really prominent people, both left and right, they really give all their kids all these advantages. So clearly, we all want good things for our families. And this is actually a good thing. Now, when I talk about privilege, I don't mean spoiling them. To me, these two things are not the same thing. When I talk about privileges, I talk about advantages or good things we want our families to have. And the goal of these things is oftentimes, as I said, to let them focus on matters that are important to them. Maybe it's to make them stronger. Maybe it's to allow them to gain more skill or to be more intelligent or to have some kind of competitive advantage. But the goal is so that they can focus on what is important to either you or to them. Unfortunately, one of the outcomes that can come from being privileged is being spoiled. Now, I don't think we need to describe too much about what, why spoiling is being bad, but let me just make an attempt at why I think, at least for myself, who has a two-year-old daughter, why I think I'm trying to avoid spoiling her. Number one is I don't want her to be rotten. I think we've all met kids in our lives that we just thought, man, this kid, rotten to the core, really getting on my nerves. And I really don't want my kid to be that kid. We don't want our kids to be weak in this world. We don't want our kids to be foolish in this world. And we don't want them just chasing after worthless or worldly things. Now, why I tell this story about being privileged this morning is because I hope something that you've realized in your own Christian life, that you, that you who are in Christ now as Christians have a privileged life. You've been given all these wonderful privileges in Christ, and he has given you spiritual life. Not just privileges, but he's actually taken you away from being spoiled. He's pulled you out of a rotten, hedonistic world where you were weak to sin, and now he sets you on the path of new life, true life, where you're strong in the Lord. Now, this sounds wonderful, but one of the pitfalls that Christians and the people of God have, have found through all time that they fall into, from Genesis to the book of Revelation, is that though this being strong in the Lord should lead us to being more like Christ, to going after what God desires, to work for God because of what he has done for us, instead, we are pulled back into the desires of the world where these things are fleeting and worthless. 
It's a story as almost as old as time, old as, as long as, almost as old as man has been alive, that there is always this tension for the people of God who are both in the world, but not of the world, that there's a temptation to come back to it. And as we talk about this passage this morning, as we reflect upon the ideas of this sermon, this is the main idea that I hope that we come across this morning. That we need to use our privileged life to do the will of God and to not to waste it on worthless, worldly things. Now let's start with verses 12 to 14 this morning. Verse 12 to 14 says this, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This passage is so interesting, and I think if you notice the way it's written, it's written a little bit different than what's about to come after it. And the reason being is because there seems to be some poetry, some rhyme, some structure here that he's not just writing propositions of what he believes, but there actually is a poetic writing here of what John is trying to get across. And the people he's speaking to in this poem or this poetic writing are to children, to fathers, and to young men. Now, scholars throughout, uh, probably in the last, uh, the last little while, have actually been kind of unsure about what to do with this section. The reason being is because, why is it that John deals with these three groups of people? Right, why does he deal with children? Maybe some children can't even read, so why does it even matter to them? Why does he deal with fathers and not mothers? Why does he deal with young men and not young, young men and young women? And there are lots of different reasons across the board about why people, uh, people what people think about the, this triplicate or these, these triple uh, ideas, these triple people, <clears throat> about why John writes it this way. But I think the answer is actually more simplistic than I think most scholars make it to be. I think that, number one, when he calls people children, if you look at what he's writing, he's calling all those who are he's writing to his, his audience are all children of God. And so to me, this makes the best use or understanding of this word children. But why fathers and young men? Again, I think this, this answer is simple in my mind because number one, the main audience of probably who he was writing to were these two groups of people. They were young men and fathers who were the, probably the main listeners as the letter was being given. Probably the first people to read this letters were these two groups of people. So that was the first reason why John addresses these two groups of people. Number two is I think that the main people who are embroiled in this conflict is fathers and young men as they kind of deal with these false teachers. If you remember way back, maybe a couple, maybe a month ago, when we actually had the, one of the first lessons in the book of 1 John, I talked about the, the reason why John writes this letter is not just to encourage believers but also to, to deal with this conflict that is happening in their body. There's a group of people that have come into the church that have talked about that they have, are the ones who have fellowship with God. They are the ones who are the true children. And John is talking to the people in, in this letter to be wary of these people. And so John is writing to fathers and young men who are embroiled in this conflict about some of the privileges that are in Christ for them. 
Now, oftentimes, I think there is some rightness to isolating different passages for different people. So sometimes we will talk about fathers, and these are things that fathers need to do, and these are about young men, and these are some things that young men need to do. But I think in this passage that we can take all the things that John is saying to not just apply to specific groups, but, but to apply to all of us as Christians today. So whether you are male or female, whether you are a mother or father, whether you are a boy or girl or man or woman, all of this has to do with us this morning. Because the immediate context for John, though it is fathers and young men, if we think about who he's writing and who this is to apply to, it's actually to apply to all Christians and everyone who calls himself a Christian. So as we talk about this passage today, don't just take these sections and be like, okay, well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not a father. I'm not a young man. I'm not a child. These don't apply to me today. I would argue that everything that John writes here applies to every single one of us today if we are in Christ. So I just wanted to get that out of the way first. Number two, what are the privileges that we as Christians experience? The privileges that we experience are all the ones that are discussed in verses 12 to 14, and how we come about these privileges is by our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, then you are God's child because you've placed your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior. And being God's child, he has given you some of the most precious gifts through Christ. These privileges come way of the salvation he has given to you, a gift that not everyone will receive. And John writes this section here to affirm and to encourage his hearers to the present and completed reality that is ours in Christ. There are three specific privileges he talks about this, this morning that are ours in Christ. Number one, he says that for, for us who are in Christ, your sins have been forgiven. Number two, that you know him who is from the beginning. And number three, you've overcome the evil one. Now, I want to spend a little, a little bit of time talking about each of these just to show you what an encouragement it is that we have these things in Christ. So firstly, your sins are forgiven. For us as Christians today, when we, have, when we take a real hard look at who we are, we can't help but realize that we are full of sin and that we are in desperate need of a Savior. And thanks be to God who sends his Son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Christ, who is the Word of life, the Word of God, he has come to die for our sins. And as chapter 1, verse 8 says, that his blood cleanses us from all sin, all unrighteousness. And now Jesus is our righteousness. He is our advocate. And he is the propitiation of our sins. This word propitiation, for some, for some reason over the last couple of months, has been a word that keeps cropping up in, in our church, in our CE studies. And I remember, the, I think the first person who brought it up was Albert in a CE class, and we were talking about it in class. And then every week since then, it keeps coming up over and over and over again. And the reason why we keep talking about this, number one, is that it's uh, providence, so God has put it in our community to talk about. But number two, it shows you how important this idea of propitiation is to us as Christians. Now, what does propitiation mean? Propitiation, when we look at it, comes from this idea, number one, that we were dead in our sins and that what it demanded for our sins was it demanded justice to be done. 
When we talk about God's wrath, it isn't a personal vendetta that God is acting out against people, but rather it's an issue of righteousness. It's an issue of justice that our sins are so bad that we could be called enemies of God, and by doing so, justice demands that it be paid, and the penalty of that is death. This wrath must be appeased, and this is what propitiation means, wrath that is appeased, that Jesus Christ dies for our sins and satisfies God's wrath by paying the cost of death on our behalf. This now is the gift, a gift that was blood-bought and a gift that is now yours in Christ. Secondly, you know him who is from the beginning. Now, there's this, again, when we think about who is from the beginning, we would, the first person we might think is God the Father. But when John writes this gospel, the person he's talking about, the person who we know from the beginning, is not God the Father, but Jesus Christ the Son. If you turn your attention to the beginning of chapter 1, uh, uh, of, of uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, or even if you go to the Gospel of John, who also writes this book in chapter 1, verse 1, in chapter 1, verse 1 in the Gospel of John, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John has continually paralleled this idea in his writing that there was Jesus Christ who is from the beginning, and he is the one who he is speaking about here. He is the object of the one that we are to know who is from the beginning. Now, what do we mean by knowing? When we go on Facebook, oftentimes, you have a whole bunch of friends, right? Some of you might number your friends in the thousands. So you have like an army of friends at your disposal. But how many of them do you actually know? Now, when I say no, I don't mean do you know their profile? Do you know all the things that are on their page that basically tells you about what they're like, what their, favorite, what their favorite foods are, where they've been, some of their pictures? What I'm really asking and what, what John is really asking is, do you know this person intimately and personally? This is what Christian knowing is. This is what, what John means when he says that you know him. It's not, that you, that not just that you know about him, but you know him in such a way that he is personal with you that you have fellowship with him. As John writes earlier in this epistle, he says verse, in chapter 1, verse 2 to 3, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was the Father who made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So in Christ, we have this wonderful relationship called the, that, that we call fellowship with God. It means that we have unity with God. It means we have partnership. We have communion. It is the idea that we personally know someone so well that we are one with them. This is the kind of relationship that Christ has given to us with the triune God. It is one that's so close and intimate, one in which we know him, we have him. He is ours and we are his. We want to be like him. We want to be one with him. It is such a precious gift that, that it's, it's such a precious gift to us because it was blood-bought and won by Christ. We actually see the importance of this idea of fellowship as we kind of look to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see that not everybody has a close relationship with God, and there are levels to being in proximity or closeness to him. And there are only very special people who got 
very close to who and with who God actually was and where he was at. And now in the new covenant, one of the great privileges of being in Christ today is that which every person desired in the old covenant. We now have that every Christian who now believes in Christ knows God in this personal way. Let's move to number three. You have overcome the evil one. When we talk about overcoming, another word that we can often use for this word is actually conquer. And our overcoming or conquer, conquering of the evil one has happened because of Christ. We have a better picture of this as we look to verse 14 where we are told that alongside this idea that we have overcome the world, we are also told that we are strong and that God abides in us or that Christ abides in us. It is in fact this idea that Christ abides in us that we can overcome the world. And the reason being is because Christ, the God King who has come, who has brought about a kingdom, has already conquered the world by the cross and by his blood. A God who has ultimately subdued the forces of the evil one. And the way that, he, the way that this looks like, the, what he does in you is that he has broken the power of sin over your life. He has restored your relationship with God through the power of Christ. And all the power of sin has now been subdued. And any cost of sin has now been paid. And now, if you are in Christ this morning, the world has no binding power on you any longer. And every person who abides in Christ now lives in the world with strength and with power. Throughout the Bible, it speaks of this idea of true strength, not in, in looking to our own abilities or to draw for our own thinking or power, but it's to draw on the might of God. And this strength oftentimes is to do two things. Firstly, it allows us to stand against worldliness. I want to talk about this a little bit later about what worldliness is. But if you think of it as this force that is against God, and if we were to stand by ourselves, it basically would be like standing naked in a blizzard. We are powerless against it. It is freezing. It is deathly cold. And apart from Christ, we would all die. However, in Christ, and as we put on the armor of God, we stand fully clothed and are ready to walk against whatever may come against us. The second thing that we have of how God has overcome the world is related to this idea of fellowship with God and our privileges it's that now that God has overcome the world, we now can walk in light and do the will of God. Maybe something we haven't fully realized, if you actually go through the chapter, uh, chapter 2, and look at how it's broken down, the first 11 verses actually speak of what is God's will for us to do in this life. This is what John is focused on. And especially what comes up as you kind of, if you remember what what. what what Elder Albert talked about was that one of the major one of the major things that God's will for us today is that we are to love our brothers because this imitates God. This is another way in which we are strong in the Lord. Not just negatively are we fighting worldliness, but positively we're doing what God desires for us to do. 
And God has done this, or we can do this, because God has cleared the path for us to do true good by serving, by, 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 by severing the power of sin in our lives, changing us to be his children, and abiding in us, leading us to do his will for us. So this is your encouragement this morning. These privileges, this life, are all yours. Christ has won all of these privileges on your behalf by the cross, by his blood, that you and I could live and enjoy a life with God, knowing him better, deeper, and more intimately than we ever could have apart from him. A life where sin has no power over you or I any longer, and every day is spent in worship and in bringing glory to God. This stands in stark contrast to those false teachers and false preachers who are in this church, people who have deceived themselves into believing that they have all of these wonderful advantages in Christ. However, they haven't experienced anything of the power of God in their life. But for us as Christians this morning, all of these wonderful privileges and advantages, again, are ours in Christ, not just today, but forever. And now being saved by Jesus Christ, our righteousness, we can now walk in the righteousness and abide by his will and commands. As I told you, the first 11 verses are all focused on this idea. And what he wants to show you is to encourage you about is this is the way that God is working in you. Now we can do the first 11 verses. We can walk in his will, do his will, love our brothers as we should. This is our encouragement. This is our spiritual life. This is the greatest outcome, the greatest good, what matters to Christ. And it is wonderful and pleasing and gives us great hope in the world. But we have to ask ourselves a question here. When you think of what we've just talked about and your experiences of being a child of God, are they closer to what it looks like for false teachers? Or does your life parody more what it is called to live like, as John talks about here in this passage? These two groups are vastly different from one another. For the Christian, we are moved by the work of Christ in our lives, and it spurs us to action and to follow God's will. For the second group, the false teachers, they, just, they think that they have fellowship with God, but nothing about what God has done in their lives spurs them to action. Which one are we? We all agree for the first one part, right? We agree that God is doing work. We're in fellowship with God. What about the second part? I've been deeply burdened by this question over this last couple weeks. <clears throat> and it's not just about this question about are we doing God's will that has enamored me, but this question about directly, and this is the immediate idea of John, is are we actually practicing the new commandment that Albert or Elder Albert preached about a couple weeks ago? In the new commandment, we're told to love our brothers as Christ has loved us, to love them as, as God is love. 
And here's the hard question that I've come to, and, and I hope we don't take it too hard, but one that we take seriously. Is there anyone who, would, who you would say, who would say, sorry, who would say about you that you have loved them the way that Christ has loved you? Is there anyone in your life, anyone in this congregation, anyone that you know, any Christian, would they say about you that you love them the way that Christ loves them? When we look at how Christ loves, Christ loves sacrificially. He's acting out always in the best interest of the person he loves, and his love drives them to be more like Christ or more like him in their lives. Can you think of anyone who you would say that you love this way today? You know, as I've met many Christians, this is not just a question that we as here at CGC have to face, that we're the only ones inundated with this problem of wondering what love looks like, but it's a unanimous issue that the entire church faces of what or how should we love. But just because everybody faces this problem doesn't mean that we shouldn't change because one of the key issues that John has against his opponents is that they say that they walk with God, but they do not love others as they should. It's not just what they believe is wrong, it's what they love is wrong, who they love was wrong, how they love is wrong. And so, again, I ask the question, is our love more like the false teachers where we say that we have fellowship with God but have not loved those around us as we should? Or are we actually fully encouraged by the life and privileges that God has given to us and we are moved to action, moved to love because of that? I know for me, as I talk about this passage, this describes me at one point. There was a time that I said that I would love, but I was so angry at people all the time. I was angry at my small group. I was angry at my church. Now, to be fair, this is not this church. This is a different church. And, and I remember just praying really hard, what is wrong with these people? Why can't they just get it? And you know what came out of that praying? It was this haunting realization that it wasn't the people or my small group, or my church, that first they had to change. It was me. It wasn't the fact that they had failed to love first. The problem is that I failed to love them. I failed to, to love in the way that God has loved me, the, the way that love, God has called me to love others. And so before I even look at others and talk about what their issues are, I need to look at myself first. And you know how God told me this? Everything I did for the next couple of weeks was all about that. Somehow, and I don't quite know how this all worked, either somebody conspired against me or God's providential work happened, that all of my Bible reading just kept pointing back to this idea that you need to go back and love. Every conversation I would have with people came back to this idea to, to not look outwardly, but first to do my part in loving others as I should. And all of the rest of my prayers this week just kept giving me this impression that love was the first thing I needed to pursue. And what I realized was my calling was not, is not a prophet over the church dispensing judgment upon them. My calling and yours today is to love, is, is to love and to do the will of God, especially in loving the family as God as he has loved us. And as your pastor this morning, 
My goal is to, to lead you into loving the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, into loving your neighbor, especially our church family, as we love ourselves. So this is the question again that we all need to come back to, that these are wonderful privileges and advantages that God has given to us, but what is it driving us to do in our lives? Is it driving us to do God's will, God's work, to love as God loves, to love the things that God loves? Or is it driving us somewhere completely other, somewhere completely else? Because if that's where it's driving you, then you have, we haven't actually experienced the trueness of God's love. The question is, is it actually driving us to trade our love for the love of the world? In verses 15 to 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, as Christians, it's hard to live in this world because everything about this world is tempting for us today. And no matter how great or spiritually strong you are as Christians, one of the hard things that we experience is that we have to live in this world and be tempted in the flesh by things that we see, both with our eyes, with our fleshly desires, and possessions that we own. And it is exhausting and it is hard to stay the course. When everything else points us in one direction, we are called to stay true north to God. One of my favorite books and one of my favorite writers, John Bunyan, has written this book called Pilgrim's Progress in which he describes this process, uh, what we see in this world as what we would call Vanity Fair. Now, it's funny because there's a magazine who took up this name and basically made it about glamorous things and glitz. It's funny because that's exactly what John Bunyan was writing about, but he, he writes about this as a negative thing. Vanity Fair in John Bunyan's book is a place as we as Christians start to head towards the celestial city of God must pass through and it is a city that is as, almost as old as human beings that has lasted a very long time. And in it we can find pleasures and fashion and power and all viable things, glamour and glitz are found everywhere and everything is purchased. And as, uh, as the main characters in the book enter into the city, they find that they are found to be strange. Their language is strange. Their dress is strange. The things that they believe are strange. And the world forces them, pushes them to conform to this fair. It uses all sorts of manners and tricks. It uses guilt. It uses threat. It compares and contrasts. And it builds a different idea of normality for them. And that's exactly how John, the writer of this epistle, sees this struggle. In verse 15, it tells us that these things in the world are sinful, things that are, are passions to our eyes, these things that, are, that, that basically are the desires of our eyes and of our flesh, these things of the pride of which we own in this world, the love of things, these are things that God has found to be sinful and completely apart from himself. John writes, this is so bad that it says that they, would, they basically have forsaken the love of Christ by loving the world. 
Now, if you think about it, there's, there's this kind of question that we have, right? If God has created creation, what is being in the world or loving the world a bad thing? And so I, I think that there are some things, and I, I think that we need to clarify what these two things are. When we talk about things of the world, we're not talking about things of which God has created that, that they themselves can have some good to them. And some examples of that are things in the world like marriage and knowledge in the world. These things in themselves are not sinful. But when the Bible talks about this idea of worldliness, it's talking about what are the values of this world? What are the systems in this world? And the things that in this world that people prioritize over God, all of these things are sinful. And this is what it means to be worldly. And to love these things is to focus our lives on the pleasures and gratification that we receive from the world and from worldly things. John has two major issues here with his love of the world. Firstly, love of the world is not from the Father. When we think about the love of God and the things that God has called us to love and the love that we have for the world, these are two contrary things. Firstly, because the love of the Father leads us to demean the things of the world or demean these temporal things of the world and make them as lesser and to focus more on earthly, eternal, sorry, eternal and permanent things. And imagine if you were describing two people and how you love each of them and it's the exact opposite. So imagine if you're describing some, a person A, and this is a person you like, so you describe them this way, that I like this person because he tells me the truth, that they love me sacrificially and they freed me from my addictions and selfishness. And then suddenly you have the second person where you say, I love the way that this person loves themselves. I love the way that this person is okay with who I am. I love the way this person never tries to change me. It's funny because I've actually heard these two statements said about two different people from one person. But to me, and I think to us here, these are contrary truths. How can you say you love this about this person, but it's in completely the opposite of how you love this other person? I think that we would say this person doesn't know what he loves. And if you're a Christian this morning, it's impossible for you to love both the world and to love God. Because these two ideas represent two very different ideals and beliefs about truth. Where for Christ, it is the true things to love. And in the world, it is the false things that we are to love. John doesn't just go into the two separate natures of the things that we love in the world, but he actually goes into the second idea that the things in the world are passing away. Now, passing away just doesn't mean that they're going away. What, this idea actually conjures up more hard ideas. It basically says that this world is in darkness. It is doomed. It is a place that God's judgment will soon be passed. And so how, for we as Christians, how can we love these things which God seems as things that must be judged, things that he finds are sinful and evil, that are completely disconnected from him. How can we love these things? And so this is John's conclusion. There's no, you cannot love the world and love God. The love, is, the love of the Father is not in you if you love this world. Now how about for us? Where is your love spent? 
have we spent loving worldly things, chasing after worldly security? Or have we spent our capital of love on loving God and the things of God? For example, loving God's people. Maybe speaking more to our bigger, the bigger idea of our own lives, is our life spent pleasing ourselves or pleasing God? There is this connection in this passage that I said this morning that the first section is that what are we to do, and that is to do the will of God by pleasing him, to loving our brothers. He encourages us that we are in the Lord and we have overcome the world, but now he reminds us and encourages us to not go back and return to the world, do not be tempted by the world as these false teachers have been. This is the same warning for us, and the way in which we can know or should think about or ask ourselves these questions is, in my mind, asking these two questions. What is our, what is our love? Where have we, we spent the capital of our love? Where is our time focused on? Are they focused on things that matter, where the privilege should lead to? Or is it focused on things that ultimately will not matter, have no purpose ultimately? Let me conclude. We must ask ourselves then again that if we experience this privileged life in Christ, does it lead to the will of God? And part of doing God's will is to love our brothers as Christ loved us. Or are we frittering away our time with worldly, worthless things? And very likely we may pass in judgment like the world does. If you struggle this morning with this question, you can ask the questions which we've asked, but you also must realize that we can only serve one master, as Matthew 6, 24 tells us. Either we serve money or we serve God. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And so my hope is for all of us this morning, as we reflect on this passage, let's reflect on which one we serve which one we love, and where our time is focused on. Thank you very much. At this point in time, I'm going to call the worship... Uh